Hello and welcome to Holistic Health Chats, a podcast where we chat about all things holistic women's health and everything in between. I'm your host, Selene Douglas, a women's health nutritionist with a focus on helping women to heal holistically and live pain and symptom-free. I'm so happy that you've made your way here. Tune in every week so we can listen, learn, and be inspired together. If you are currently wanting to get personalized advice to support you with your nutrition and hormones, the best place to start is for you to book in a complimentary consultation. In this 15-minute consultation, we will discuss your current health goals, what you can expect from consultations, and we cover any questions that you may have. If you're happy to go ahead, we book in a time for your initial consultation, but equally, if you need a little time to think about it, that is perfectly okay too. To book in a complimentary consultation, simply head over to selendouglas.com forward slash links and navigate to the book section. Alternatively, you will also find the booking link in the show notes on this episode. We hope to meet you very soon. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I am speaking with nutritionist Ellie on all things fat loss. We cover the difference between weight loss and fat loss, major flaws on both sides of the calorie equation, explaining why if you've been doing this, why it may not be working for you. And we're also covering all the details on what you need to start exploring if you've been trying to lose fat, but nothing seems to be working for you. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's episode. Hey, Ellie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Celine. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I know. Very exciting. Um, Today talking I know first time um talking all about fat loss but before we get into the topic I'd love if you could um tell us all a bit about you what you do and what kind of clients you work with as well thanks so I'm a nutritionist working one-on-one um out of my own practice which is called nutritionally and I've been in clinic for about six years now. Uh, before that, I was working in corporate health and well-being. So I was there for about eight years, if not a little bit longer, before I thought, you know, what on earth am I, what on earth am I doing? I have to come back to what it is that I always wanted to do, which was to practice one-on-one with individuals. Um, when I first studied, I studied exercise science and nutrition, and I always wanted to work with athletes when I finished university I was young I was raw and I just thought how on earth am I going to relate to people help give people real life advice when I haven't explored the world haven't explored real life haven't had many of my own health challenges haven't had many of my own like sporting pursuits that I've had to uh you know um train for or work towards either so you know in leaving uni and working for those eight to 10 years in corporate, it was just the best training ground for me to see what life was like for individuals, not just athletes. And um, now, you know, I do work with athletes. I like to think that anybody who's physically active most days of the week is an athlete and primarily supporting those that have hormonal imbalances, body compositional goals that they're working towards. That's where I love working. So, you know, working with active people who may or may not be seeing me specifically for sports fueling guidelines, recovery guidelines, but really want to make sure that they're allowing their training to happen behind the scenes and not get in the way of, you know, their ability to lose weight or gain weight in some cases you know, balance hormones for the sake of fertility, um, quality of life. They're the they're the people that I see. Yeah, amazing. Which is mm. such a um, it's probably most of our female population have goals that fall into that, right? I would say so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of them have trouble identifying with the term athlete, but uh, anyone who's active regularly really is an athlete. Yeah, it's sliding scale, obviously, of kind of whether it's competitive or recreational. But, yeah, everyone really is an athlete that's physically active. I love that. Um, So let's get into today's topic around fat loss. I'd love to 
start with, I guess, some of the big myths um, and misconceptions that we see. And obviously the main one I think that I want to start with um, is the calories in, calories out model and why that's sort of flawed and, um, and, and really, you know, doesn't work in most cases. Yeah. Well, there's so many myths in this space, right? And when I talk about working a lot with fat loss, or weight loss, because there is a difference between the two and I don't think people quite understand it. And I really purposefully often use the term fat loss because we're not looking to lose weight at all costs. We are looking to lose weight through burning body fat. And I don't think a lot of people take the time to actually stop and think about that. But, you know, we can lose weight through losing bone mineral density or losing muscle mass or um, losing water weight or we can lose weight through losing body fat. And for most people, when they say they want to lose weight, they actually mean they want to lose body fat. Most people aren't wanting to lose five kilos of muscle, you know, unless you are actually somebody who's trying to get into a particular weight range or something for a sport um, and you're willing to lose some muscle to get there. Anyway, so (laughs) let's differentiate between weight loss and fat loss. And, you know, when I say that I work in this area part of me is like, oh, do I want to join the club? Because there's there's so many reductionist views around fat loss. And, you know, one of the biggest ones is, is it's simply a matter of, you know, calories in, calories out or eating less, exercising more or creating a calorie deficit. And of course, there are other um, very simplified view of things or misconceptions around things, you know, eat frequently to you know, keep the fire stoked. Keep the metabolism going. Yeah. Speed up your metabolism. Eat every two to three hours. Don't let it go longer because your metabolism will slow down. Like these are the things or these are the sorts of notions that were being talked about when I was studying um, back in 2005 and 2006 and still a lot of people would talk in this way in in the fat loss space. But calories in, calories out is what I said. It is very much a reductionist view of fat loss or weight loss, and it doesn't take into account all of these beautiful homeostatic mechanisms that we have in the body, uh, which we really want to embrace, and we'll get into that a bit later in this conversation. But to say that losing weight is purely as simple as eating less exercising more or consuming fewer calories than you burn um, is is really oversimplifying things. You know, I know that you would have had many people come to you looking for support with fat loss and how many of them have already come to you and they're, they're, they're in a calorie deficit. They're already eating less energy than, sorry, they're already eating less than they burn. Yeah. Um, so we know that calorie deficit is not the only thing that matters. Mm. It, it does matter, but it's not the only thing that matters and that's potentially where, where we go wrong. You know, you see these people on Instagram just promoting like, it's just calorie deficit, it's just calorie deficit. Why does fasting work? Because you get a calorie deficit. Or why does cutting out gluten work because you get a calorie deficit and it's it's just not as simple as that in well certainly the cases that I see for some people it is that simple but it's certainly not always that simple and it can trip people up and there are flaws in tracking calories in calories out um, and for people to get caught up purely in what they're consuming and what they're expending means that they're they're open to those flaws and they're going to create, you know, real challenges for themselves. Mm-hmm. And when I say flaws, it's that when we're looking at calories in, there's huge margin for error, okay? So when, um, when we label foods, right, so you know how on the back of a, a food label we will have um, the ingredients, we'll have the nutrition panel, and that will include things like total calories, per 100 grams per serve, carbohydrates, fats, protein per 100 grams per serve. And we know that that calorie content by law is allowed to have a variance of up to 20%. 20% is pretty big. 
it's huge so um right there just based just with someone's you know, for someone who has all the good intentions around being really accurate about tracking their calories and what they're consuming, um, you've got 20% that is entirely out of your control. Are you going to add an extra 20% to your deficit? Mm. No. <laughs> so there is inaccur- inaccuracies there that are outside of our control. And then we look at the inaccuracies that are potentially there within our control. Um so studies show that um, people are notoriously bad at accurately, accurately reporting what they eat to the point where somebody might have all of the good intentions, but they will misreport what they eat by anywhere between as much as 30 to 70% because they forgot what they ate that day or because they didn't realise they put two tablespoons of olive oil on their salad versus one tablespoon of olive oil on their salad, or because they decided to eat the food that was left over on their son's lunch plate and didn't feel like it was necessary to track that food that they that they ate, or because they drank a couple of glasses of wine and they didn't think that that was something that needed to be added to the calories that they were tracking. So it's really possible for people to inaccurately um, estimate or track the calories that they consume. Um, So if there's going to be flaws at that level, like don't get entirely fixated on the calories that you consume. Look at other measures of a, of a a diet or a way of eating. Um, I use the word diet a lot, but like how much negative press is there Mm. at the moment around the use of the word diet? Um, So we'll say way of eating, Um, you know, um, look at other measures of the way you eat um, that will support your, your fat loss goals. Yeah. And I like what you said around it not being fat loss at any cost, right? Like going back to it being really about overall health. And I, I don't know about the clients that you're seeing, but I find I am seeing more of a trend of people now like wanting to lose fat in a healthy and sustainable way. But what I do find is still they have a real fixation on what the scales say. And going back to your um, sort of weight loss versus fat loss, I think that's like a real area where we can go wrong, right? Because if we're only looking at that number on the scale, it doesn't really tell us much about your body composition and and how that is impacting that number. Not at all. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm sure you're seeing this. People want to let go of the scales. You know, they um, might express goals around I want to increase my energy levels, I want to have more vitality, I want to feel better about myself and I'd like to lose some body fat. Uh, and they want all of those things, but at the end of the day, the scale is what validates the effort that they've put in and how far they've come uh, despite, their, you know, despite them really wanting to let go of that. So, you know, part of our work as nutritionists, I think, is to um, like let people know from the get-go that, do you know what, your measure of success is not going to come down to the change in the numbers on the scale. Your measure of success is going to be, you know, how much your cravings changing, how much more headspace do you have available to dedicate to your work or your children or yourself because you're not thinking about what to eat, when to eat and whether or not you should be eating it. you know, are you able to get through the day? Uh, can you concentrate better? Like, you know, just all of these other things. And then, of course, um, indicators of body compositional change. Do your pants feel light, yeah. looser? Can you get back into clothes that you, you wish you'd been able to wear for the last couple of years? Do you feel better in training? You know, these are all um, potential indicators of body compositional change. And there might be a 500-gram difference on the scale. The other thing about scales is that they're like, inaccurate sometimes. They're, too. <laughs> they're inaccurate and, you know, you can fluctuate. Um, I know some practitioners, I don't do this. Sometimes I explain it to people as an option, but I know some practitioners who would say if you truly want to measure your 
pure weight change, you should be weighing yourself every single day and taking an average of that week's weight Mm -hmm. and then comparing that average with the next week's average, following week's average, following week's average and actually tracking your average Mm -hmm. weekly weight. And then you could take it the next level for a cycling female and say, okay, well, we're going to actually not track week on week. We're going to track relative weeks. So we'll track week one of last cycle against week one of the next cycle, week two of last cycle against week two of the next cycle. Uh, And look, I think in reality that it's better just to see the pants getting looser or somebody getting more comfortable with seeing themselves in the mirror. But when I explain that to my clients, they're like, oh, okay, like that's the level of variance that might be there on the scales because of where I am in my cycle or what I ate for dinner last night or how complete my elimination was this morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I, I think um, I've had that a lot where upon further questioning, clients might be weighing themselves at the start of their cycle or, you know, end of their period versus like when they're about to get their period the next time. And that is often you know, a large amount of variation if there's any sort of like swelling, um, fluid retention that they're dealing with. Um, And then, yeah, I've definitely had instances where I've had clients freaking out around, you know, just 500 grams or so difference Mm. of the scales, like really panicking um, that they've regressed, they've gone backwards. How could they have possibly gained another 500 grams? I'm like, honestly, that could have been the glass of water that you had that morning. Absolutely. yeah any any number of different things yeah so many reasons i mean look variances of of a kilo um would you know get the alarm bells ringing a little bit and make me wonder if if there's a variance for kilo Mm. day to day what's causing that there's inflammation coming from somewhere for example or you didn't measure in the same scenario you know one day was done uh you know pre-breakfast pre-elimination and the next day was done post-breakfast um post post-elimination, for example. Um, But, yeah, fluctuations of at least anywhere up to 500 grams day to day would just be, that means nothing. Yeah. There's going to be those fluctuations Mm -hmm. without doubt. So, um, yeah, on the subject of actual body composition, pure weight on the scale is not a great indicator of um, the compositional change that's happening. Mm. I love it when a client says, I have not seen the number on the scale change. But I'm wearing a skirt that I couldn't wear last summer. I know. It's like, I well, why are we still hung up on the scales? That's the end goal. You want to feel good. You want to be confident. Yeah. That's the goal. You've just yeah. achieved the goal. If you feel good, if you feel good in your body and your clothes, like what more? Yeah. What more do you want really? Yeah, like, why it's just a number. Validation. Mm, mm, yeah. 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 I love it. So is that um, really what you use for tracking is more like, um, how someone's fitting into their clothes, how they're feeling within their body. Obviously those other more um, health related markers around like energy levels and um, mental clarity and all of that kind of thing. The truthful answer is that sometimes it depends on the client. Mm. Um, Some clients are very number oriented. And so if there are going to be scales involved, then I will look more at um, averages week on week, for example, averages I don't necessarily often um, propose that as being the primary means for tracking, but certainly that's what some people want to do. That's how they want to track it. And it will give an indication of change. I use waist circumference a lot, um, especially when when we're not doing, we're not dealing with purely just aesthetic um, goals. We're dealing with, with somebody who has, um, you know, risk factors or already has metabolic disease. And we really need to make sure that that weight comes down. And mm. we know that that central adiposity is going to pose more risk. So I do like to measure waist circumference and teach people, you know, where they're measuring around their waist and when they're doing it. So we get um, accuracy. Mm-hmm. Uh some people will actually use, uh, you know, body compositional um, measures, DEXs, for example. Um, I I'm totally open to using those as long as um, the actual, uh, like, testing company remains the same. And Some conditions, yeah. Exactly. The conditions remain stable. Yeah. And then, yeah, outside of those things, it'll be 
Um, how are your energy levels? Like when you wake up in the morning, how are you feeling? Mm. Are you getting crashes during the day? What's appetite control like? What are your cravings like? How do you feel looking at yourself in the mirror? Um, how do you feel in your clothing? Has there been a change in size or belt, belt loops? All yeah. of those things are indications that we're heading in the right direction and there is a shift towards burning fat, which is a process. It is. It is. I have maybe a controversial question. Um, Can I go back one step with some other, like two other flaws that we just didn't cover that I need to round out? (laughs) Um, On the other side of tracking, so cows in, cows out, is the flaws with tracking calories out. So with, you know, the devices that people are using these days, their garments, their Apple Watches, MyFitnessPal, um, research shows that those estimations of calorie expenditure can be as out, can be out by as much as 75%. So on, sorry, as much as 95%. So again, on the other side of the equation, um, it's flawed, you know, so somebody's going and doing a workout and like, Oh my God, I bought burned 400 calories. So I got to go and eat another 400 calories. Um, I'm not saying you shouldn't eat according to your training, but you shouldn't be looking to necessarily fill the gap that was created um, from that training session, especially if that gap was potentially um, mis- miscalculated. And the other one um, is a process called adaptive thermogenesis or AT, which is not the body necessarily going wrong, but when we go into too much of a calorie deficit too quickly, it's essentially a... Um, metabolic alteration that takes place to minimise the degree of energy deficit um, because the body gets concerned, like, oh, my God, suddenly I'm going into an energy deficit. So um, it kicks things into gear. It starts to slow down total daily energy expenditure or resting metabolic rate, and that can happen by anywhere. That can happen or cause up to 18% change in resting metabolic rate. Um, and then it will just decrease thyroid hormone output to decrease that resting metabolic rate. It will change other hormones like leptin and ghrelin. Um, and this adaptive thermogenesis has the potential to increase cortisol. So, again, someone with good intentions going into a strong, hard calorie deficit quickly has no control over that process of AT taking place, but it it could possibly take place. Mm. and get in the way of someone losing body fat. Yeah, which is terrifying, I think, when you look at, you know, some of those more sort of extreme and restrictive um, ways of eating out there um, that people could, you know, just sort of jump in and get started with if it's such a huge gap from what they're used to eating. Um, And I've definitely seen even just I don't wear any of those devices, but um, doing sessions with other friends their watchers say that they've done, you know, 600 calories in one session and then the other person says 300, um, well, not those exact numbers, but they're about yeah, but like nearly double so, like nearly double the session and, you know, basically doing the exact same session, similar body comp and all of that. So it just, um, yeah, begs the question whether, there, you know, there is that much individual variance, probably not. There's obviously some sort of... Um, yeah, variation in the devices. And I think uh, sometimes with a lot of that tracking as well, I don't know if you see this, but I I guess with people thinking then there's a gap to fill, it sort of um, I think can prevent people from like listening to their own hunger cues as well because they're like, oh, I've got, you know, 500 calories left at the end of the day that I've got to eat. I'm going to, you know, I've got room for dessert or whatever. And it's like, did you actually, you know, want that? Or did you need that extra snack? Were you actually hungry for that? Or are you just filling that gap because you had that allowance in your sort of um, yeah. Yeah, calorie allowance for the day? Definitely. And look, for some people, um, for some people, you, that it, you know, for those that are dealing with eating disorders or mm. those with hypothalamic amenorrhea, you do need them to eat those extra 500 or 400 calories in if they're not feeling overly hungry. That's because they've stopped listening to their body Mm. for so long. They don't know how how their body's talking to them. But, yeah, often people ask me the question, like, if I haven't haven't had my 
the 200 calories that you suggest I have by the end of the day, should I go and eat something after dinner? It's like, well, no, if you're not hungry, Mm. (laughs) don't go and have more after dinner. Learn to listen to your body. And also because of that flaw we know exists in in the tracking, maybe you're not hungry because you actually did eat those 200 calories Mm. somewhat somewhere earlier in the day. You just actually didn't recognize it. Yeah, 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 absolutely, for sure. Um, so yeah, what I wanted to ask your thoughts <laughs> and opinions <laughs> on just going back to what you mentioned around, you know, some people wanting to lose fat for more aesthetic personal goal reasons versus some wanting to lose weight for health reasons, as in they've got metabolic syndrome and they really need to lose some of that um, central adiposity. What are your thoughts around the like healthy at any size sort of movement and notion because I have a problem with it. Yeah. I I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I look, I think we got caught up in social media or media in general mm. with healthy at any size versus I'm lovable, I'm worthy, I'm wonderful at any size right? Because we are like, regardless of our size, we are beautiful. We are potentially great people. (laughs) We are worthy of love. Um, But to say that you can be healthy at any size is, is actually just not true Mm. because we know that carrying excess weight is going to put someone at risk of metabolic disease and increase risk of multiple forms of cancers, Alzheimer's, the list goes on and I don't know the, the percentages off the top of my head, but we know that carrying extra weight and being, an, you know, overweight or obese is going to increase your risk of conditions that will reduce your lifespan, hmm. not just quality of life, but your lifespan. Yeah. So I think the phrase needs to be. Needs a um, rebrand. It needs a rebrand. Add it to the list. Uh, and we need to stop confusing, you know, lovable at any weight versus healthy yeah. at any yeah. weight. Um, yeah. Because I think that's what people are like. That's what I guess the other side are attaching to is mm. you know, don't make people feel bad for holding extra weight. So we're not trying to make them feel bad. We're just highlighting some realities here mm. that you mm. are putting yourself at greater risk. It's it's it would be like scooting around the topic of smoking. Yeah, oh, don't make that person feel bad for smoking. So, well, then why do we have ads that are really gruesome and in your face around smoking? Um, it's 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 just it's ignoring the, same thing. the yeah, it's ignoring the issue really. And I think at the moment, um, I, I think we have to be so careful around what we say because I think that um, you know there's just been a real movement which is great in a lot of ways to be more accepting of everyone. And mm. I think that's amazing in so many ways, but I think in this instant it's actually potentially quite damaging really for some yeah. people. If we're not, if those people then, you know, are unable to get the help that they need essentially. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and there's also a difference between celebrating different shapes and sizes. Mm, of course. You know, having you know, size 12, 14, 16 models, you know, in their active wear, in their underwear. I think it's different, you know, skin colours and ethnicities and that's that's wonderful. That um and and that's sort of different, but I think mm. it's getting caught up in the same thing. Mm. That's different to saying that yeah, I agree. you can't be healthy at any weight. Um and of course we're not saying you're going to be unhealthy at a size 12. I think we no. do need to get more used to celebrating different body shapes and sizes, mm. but we shouldn't celebrate those that are um, having you know, clinically problems. overweight or obese. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Mm. Cool. Okay. Thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to, I mean, I obviously agree, um, but I just wanted to talk about that. Um, so, if, yeah, covered that. I'd love to hear outside of obviously then the calorie equation, what other Mm. factors play into fat loss? Yeah, multiple. (laughs) And um, maybe the simplest way of putting it is that it's, it's hormones, hormones, which I essentially think are like, um, 
you know, they're in control of maintaining homeostasis. That's that's what our hormones do. They dial up, they dial down according to what's, you know, required, you know, in the environment that is our body to keep it healthy and safe. And if we're not supporting those hormones that naturally want to help our body be healthy and safe, which is not to carry excess body fat and not to have excess blood glucose levels like our body wants to be at a healthy weight so we need to support our hormones that are going to support that healthy weight um and so when we talk about the other elements that support body fat loss we've got to look at um nurturing and normalizing the production of of hormones um probably the number one that i talk about and try to explain to my clients and get them across is insulin because insulin resistance will make it really hard to burn body fat, even though you might see some people saying it's not like I saw on Instagram today. (laughs) Um, But insulin will make it hard for people to burn body fat. Insulin is a life-saving hormone in in the right amounts in the sense that its job is to normalize blood glucose levels because our body doesn't like blood glucose levels too high or too low. Um, It's like Goldilocks. So insulin's job is to come and make sure that um, blood glucose levels stay healthy. Uh, But insulin is also a fat storage promoting hormone. So if we have high insulin, then there is absolutely going to be a predisposition to store fat rather than effectively burn fat. So insulin is a really key hormone in this, you know, hormonal model of of fat loss, um, or at least in looking at why for, you know, any given individual going into a calorie deficit may not be enough because if there is insulin resistance and they've got really high insulin levels, well, then their body will hold on to body fat. So rather than focusing purely on that calorie deficit, our strategy needs to actually be on focusing on how to, um, reduce insulin because we can test insulin we can go and get a blood test done and we can actually see whether or not we have mild to moderate insulin resistance so the strategies should be around how we reduce that insulin and how we normalize our blood sugar levels so we don't we don't have um, elevated insulin levels and we can use meal composition to affect that insulin we can use meal timing we can use nutritional supplements there are herbs that can be used as well we can use stress management techniques you know there are lots of things that we can do outside of simply just trying to eat less calories mm. to influence insulin levels yeah i think it's very um what's the word like reassuring I think when clients do have insulin tested and then they see that it's come back high and they're like oh that's why you know all of these things that I've been doing in the past don't work that's why I have really intense cravings Cravings. that's why my weight gathers around like my midsection my upper thighs all of that that's why I can't stay away from the bread yeah that's why my testosterone levels Mm. are high um, while my liver markers are out, you know, there's a number of things that uh, happen as a result of that elevated insulin, which indicates insulin resistance, either mild um, or moderate or more severe. Mm-hmm. So it definitely needs to be addressed. Yeah, I find usually the initial response is like, oh, my God, really? Is, have I got insulin that high? Um, once people understand what a normal level mm-hmm. is, and we ideally want to see insulin somewhere between four and nine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, oh, okay, now I've got over the like shock. All right, now I can be more strategic with my approach and know that, um, you know, if I focus on getting my, let's say, starting with my 12-hour overnight fast Mm. and I focus on really centering my meals around fibre and protein and some healthy fats and maybe I get really committed to taking my magnesium, knowing that there's a number of of supplements that will Mm. help with insulin resistance. But, you know, if we can whittle it down to three key things like that, like that just starts to become really tangible for someone rather than, oh, my God, I'm just going to be this hungry nightmare because of you know 400 calorie deficit every day yeah um and 
other key hormones which I will re routinely be testing for will be our thyroid hormones. Um, and I know you do a lot of work in the thyroid space. And, you know, I'm hoping that people are starting to get the sense that, yeah, fat loss is not simple because <laughs> yeah. there are lots of things that, that influence it that they don't always think about. But our, th our thyroid hormones play a big role here. And this is why we don't want to cut um, calories or energy intake quick too quickly too soon because we know that that adaptive thermogenesis will naturally start to reduce thyroid hormone output. But there are other influences on thyroid hormone output, whether that be nutrient deficiencies, uh, selenium, zinc, excess, tyrosine, carbohydrate like if we suddenly go too low too quickly in carbohydrate that will start to impact thyroid hormone output stress will impact uh, so the thyroid hormones themselves um, t4 and t3 should be assessed if if anybody is struggling to lose mm. um to lose body fat through um you know um conventional calories in versus calorie out methods um, or if they're not insulin resistant but we still feel there's a real barrier mm. or if we just want all the information laid out in front of us, test yeah. those thyroid hormones. It's not always easy to do and I'm sure you've talked about it on the podcast mm. before because those thyroid hormones are not considered to be routine tests unless our more rudimentary marker of thyroid function, which is TSH, or thyroid stimulating hormone, unless that is outside of the reference range, mm. you know, then maybe we can carry on to a T4 and maybe a T3 test. Yeah. Um, but often those tests will have to be paid for out of pocket, which yeah. is, you know, it's not the end of it the is world what it is. outside of the realms of possibility for most people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Obviously you can there's some um fairly affordable options through ice cream and and that kind of yeah. thing. Um yeah. and Sometimes as well, GPs are happy to include it on the referral, um, which might have other tests that they're happy to do, like your insulin and your nutrients, and then the client can just pay for that directly at the pathology. Yep. Um, and it's actually more affordable that way because then they're not paying ice cream as that third-party company. So it's the yeah, cheapest Yeah, the yeah. extra collection fee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's do. always worth trying. Um, yeah. Some GPs are hesitant if they don't know how to analyse the results. Yeah. Um, however, one of those things you can put out there if, you know, if you are speaking to your doctor is I will be talking to my nutritionist or my naturopath or, or whoever it might be about these results. So I will have some support. And sometimes even that can make a GP mm. feel a bit more comfortable about referring for, um, the out-of-pocket tests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are other hormones involved in this picture. Cortisol is a big one, mm. um, which sometimes I don't even test for cortisol. I'm like, you can I tell sometimes. You, yeah. I hear you. yeah. You can just tell whether they're, you know, that tired or wired at night time or if they're just getting really, um, you know, apathetic about things. Uh, yeah. You know that there might be either way with regards to cortisol, either low, either low or high. Yeah. Um, certainly if somebody's not sleeping well, chronically sleep deprived, then we know that cortisol might be an issue. Um, and that has a flow on effect to insulin resistance and, and thyroid, thyroid hormone yeah. and then the other ones would be our appetite controlling hormones leptin mm. and ghrelin so um you know sometimes we can see um always suspect increases in leptin um, which might make someone hungrier and not be able to hear those um or feel those natural cues of satiety um or uh, respond to um, I guess the other hormone ghrelin, which is like our hormone that makes us feel full and satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah so, they're the primary so, much, hormones. so much there and so different to, I guess, just that standard advice of um, looking at calories in, calories out. The other thing I think that's really important, which, yeah, you did sort of touch on was obviously the meal composition side of things, because I see all the time on Instagram, even really well-known fitness influencers and things like that um, showing what they eat in a day. And honestly, like I'm repulsed by <laughs> to be frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that as well can be obviously quite problematic when we're just looking at, you know, it's, it's, it's more than just the amount of calories. It's also like what they're made up of. 
Um, And that, of course, goes on to influence other things as well when we look at the micronutrients in the food that we're eating. And then, like you said, how that's maybe impacting our thyroid hormone production um, or even the function of our insulin receptors, all those sorts of things. Yeah, our mitochondria. Um, I I hear you and I feel you. You know, when you see someone like, this is what I had for breakfast today Mm. and this is how you can have a 300-calorie breakfast it's like, why is that being used the measure of, why is that the selling point of this breakfast? Uh, and then, you know, there are other perhaps more well-intentioned individuals who might say, this is how you can get 25 grams of protein in a breakfast. Mm. Like, even though that's simplifying what what makes a quality breakfast. Mm. And of course you do to some degree, because we're on Instagram and no one's going to sit and listen to like a, 15 item list of what's in the breakfast um but it's still a simplified view of like what makes a a quality meal and complete meal uh but yeah when you are when you restrict calories to the point where there is a significant um deficit then you are going to be at risk Mm. of um not only at a macro level not getting what the body needs, not getting enough protein, for mm. example, or in some cases not getting enough carbohydrate or not mm. getting at the right time of the day. And then, um, yeah, at a micronutrient level, you will be absolutely exposing yourself to risk of um, not consuming enough iron and over time starting to see mm inadequacies in iron studies or heaven forbid anemia yeah Um, or it might be you know not consuming enough of those thyroid supporting nutrients zinc selenium iodine um, or you know winding up with vitamin d deficiency you know Mm -hmm. just the list goes on of of the nutrients that we don't want to fall short on and not all of these influenced all of these nutrients are purely influenced by the diet with mm. other factors mm-hmm. that influence nutrient status like um you gut know lifestyles and key yeah. rhythm gut gut health stress levels mm. um hormones but our diet does does play a part and you know if we have low iron levels or we're anemic we're certainly going to be having trouble burning fat yeah <laughs> so these this these have to be considered if you want long term fat loss to be or long-term sustainable fat loss to be the goal mm-hmm. which is very different to you know being able to achieve a calorie deficit to affect a five kilo weight loss goal and then yeah. not really worry about what happens after you've lost the weight yeah but, and it comes back to your initial point around like fat loss but not at any cost right yes yeah 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 um so <laughs> when you asked me before about the people that I work with I love working with people who were like I want to feel better. I want to um, like the way I want to like the way I look. I want to be proud of myself. Um, I want to be healthy. I want to be here for the long term, and I want to, yeah, I, I, I want to not lose weight at any cost. They're mm. the people where I'm like, great, we can work together. Yeah, we're aligned. Love yeah. that. Yeah. What are your? Do you see much around? Um, clients who might be eating foods that they sort of unidentified have an intolerance to and that triggers sort of um, like inflammatory water retention and that kind of thing. Do you see much of that? Yeah, definitely. And um, sometimes that is, you know, starting from like what is at the top of the the culprit, the likely culprit Mm -hmm. list. Uh, and sometimes it's actually having to do some testing to mm. to get there. Um, but usually there'll be cues. Mm. There will be cues coming and um, without sounding cliche, top of the list will be gluten and dairy. Uh, and there will be indicators from that person like, oh, yeah, I do I have- feel amazing when I eat a whole bowl of pasta or something. It, exactly. It just doesn't sit well. Um, or yeah, I do need to run to the bathroom after have after I um, have milk, or uh, you know I do get breakouts after I go mm. to a party where there's cheese platters. There'll be little indicators of what might be the trigger for that person. Mm. Mm. I've got a great example of a client. She's so lovely. She's 
you know, early 20s. Um, she's had lap band surgery. Um, but when she came to start working with me a few years post-surgery, um, she must have been about 128, 130 kilos. So obviously shrinking the size of her stomach and um, reducing the amount that she could eat was not enough to affect sustainable weight loss. Um, but she was at you know, she was just at the point where she was ready to do what she needed to do and learn about what she was eating. And we did start almost first consult by removing gluten and dairy. Uh, and, you know, there's a conversation between me and the individual to make sure they're ready for it and they know what their alternatives are and they've got strategies for what they're going to do in social circumstances you know, because it's for a lot of people, it's a big thing yeah. to Especially remove those in your two things. early 20s, depending on sort of what your social life is like. Yeah. like that can be quite hard. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she's now at 106 kilos um, four or five months later. Mm. And when we first met each other, she said 120 just seems to be this like point that I can't get below I'm like I have this like mental block around 120 I just don't think I can get below it and you know we got below that pretty quickly and she's continued to reduce and I can tell you it's not because I've got her eating less calories than Mm. she was prior to us working together there's a lot more strategy around what she's eating when she's eating um and a whole other host of lifestyle factors Mm. that she's taking into consideration so, yeah, um, removing those inflammatory foods can make a difference. Yeah, 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 it can make such a big difference. And I think it's always a um, good reminder of how well those foundational changes can really work and looking at those sort of like obvious things to start with. Um, I had a client last year who, yeah, similar, she said she just could never lose that sort of like pouch around her belly. Like she said, you know, I've, she was overall, she wasn't, you know, extremely overweight or anything like that, but she just felt like for what she was doing physically and the rest of her diet that it just wasn't adding up, I suppose, yeah. Um, And in her intake it was something like, um, you know, if I eat too much pasta or too much bread I start to feel sick and that's always a red flag for, for me because I think, people often have a tendency to go, well, I won't overdo it, but if I have a little bit of it, like I'm okay. Mm -hmm. And I tend to think sometimes that, well, are you just causing yourself to, and sorry to put this simplistically, but like causing yourself to feel a little bit shit all the time by having a little bit of that food, right? But you don't know unless you remove it because you get then a big enough contrast that if you remove that food for a period of 30 days, one of two things is going to happen. Nothing and you feel the same and you okay, cool, that's definitely not it. Or you feel extraordinarily different. And when you re-include it, it's going to be a real slap in the face that it's obviously not a food that you, you know, eating. Mm. And then and then that experience is the motivator. So no longer yeah. is it, oh, my nutritionist, the lens that yeah. I couldn't eat pasta. It is, oh, my God, I've learned that I feel really rubbish after I have pasta. Mm. So I'm actually going to skip it tonight. Mm. I'll order the meat and salad, whatever yeah. it is, or I'll go and buy some legume pasta. Um, and that drives much, like that Easier drives behaviour change that is like far mm. more rooted, you know. Yeah. It's going to continue. It's not a struggle. Mm, yeah. 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 Amazing. Anything else that you feel we haven't covered or that you wanted to mention? Look, there's there's so much to take into consideration in the body compositional space, and I hope what what's really clear just from this conversation is that there is a lot. You don't have to know it all. But if you are trying to lose weight and you've been focusing on eating less and exercising more and you've actually gone to the step of, you know, tracking it all in a calorie counter and using that as your barometer of how how well you're going, quote unquote, and you're not making progress, then now, now you have a little indication as to why and where you need to go to next 
Um, it's not always simple. There's nothing wrong with needing to get outside support. You know, you're not a failure if you can't eat less and exercise more and not see a change in weight. Um, so, yes, hopefully we've not scared people but helped people to understand where they could be going wrong if they're struggling and and that there are so many things to explore mm-hmm which as we sort of highlighted before is an empowering thing because it means we mm. can get really specific with strategy around wanting to change body fat levels. Yeah, amazing. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think it's also freeing when you can get to a point where you maybe don't have to do a lot of that hopefully really strict oh my tracking. God, yes. You've got a lot <laughs> more mental space to think about other more important things and actually yeah. enjoy food as well because I think that, when you desperately want to lose fat or are hung up with the scales, it's just such a huge chunk of your mental capacity that's tied up with that. And I know clients can experience so much sort of stress and anxiety around eating. And that just makes me so sad because I think it is like one of life's most amazing, enjoyable things is food and taste and all those experiences that come with it because food is basically tied up in every single thing that we do. Mm. Um, And I think it's just so amazing if people can get to a place where they can like be happy around food. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Definitely take away that, that heartache associated with it and make it enjoyable without doubt. Yeah. Without doubt. Amazing. Well, Tell us where um, we can find out more about you and also your masterclass, your podcast, all the things. Thanks. So um, my website is my little hub of, you know, get to know me, read, try some recipes, and that's nutritionally.com, so nutrition with E-L-L-Y.com. And, yes, I have a masterclass there at the moment, Burn Fat for Fuel. It's 90 minutes of goodness and questions at the end. Um, I hosted that live last year, but it's now available on demand for anybody who missed it and um, wants to really understand some evidence-based advice around being able to burn fat effectively. That is the masterclass. Um, And then I am active on Instagram and that's just nutritionally. Um, people can find me there posting probably about my dog um, or I am 32 weeks pregnant, so probably posting and some sort of bump pics <laughs> <laughs> and probably baby spam to come as well. Amazing. I'll pop all of those links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Holistic Health Chats. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you could leave me a rating and review in iTunes, as this allows me to help more women just like you. Holistic Health Chats is not intended to replace medical advice, so please consult with your practitioner before making any changes to your current health. If you are ready to take your health to the next level and would like some personalized support, the next step is booking in for a complimentary health chat. Please head to selendouglas.com forward slash book for more information.